We are all familiar with the saying, um, what you don't know won't kill you. Uh, but, you know, that's not really exactly true all the time, is it? Um, it works for some things like, uh, you know, you can sneak some kale into my smoothie and I might not know, and it might not kill me. But um, there's other things. Gravity, for example, um, does not take into account your level of knowledge or ignorance. Um, you know, about it. If you strap on some feathers and jump, uh, it doesn't matter what you know or don't know, it will, it, will, it will cost you. It will hurt. So we know ignorance can certainly at times be costly. And how much more is this the case when it comes to spiritual matters, eternal matters? So I'll invite you, if you have a Bible, to turn with me to Luke chapter 9, verse 37. Last week, uh, when we went through our passage last week, in verse 35, we noticed, as, so if you remember, the, the three disciples, they went up with Jesus on this mountainside, and there was this transfiguration, we call it, uh, and, uh, and while they're up there, this voice from heaven comes, and the Father says, this is my Son, the chosen, the chosen One, listen to Him. Listen to Him was this command that the Father gives to the disciples, and we looked at that last week. We mentioned how last week... Uh, we need Jesus to be our prophet. We saw how Jesus fulfills three uh, offices. He's priest, he's king, and he's prophet. And, uh, and, and, and he came to show us God, and we need this because we are ignorant. As sinful people, we, don't, we, we wouldn't figure it out, all that there is to know about God, how it is we can be made right with him. And, uh, and so we need Jesus to show us the way. We need to be shown. So as we continue today uh, through Luke, continue these next verses, we're going to see four accounts that highlight the necessity and the need of listening to Jesus. We're going to have to do what it was the Father told the disciples they should do, and that we, by extension, should do. And these are four stories, four accounts that contrast the weakness and the ignorance of man, particularly here the disciples, and the... Uh, the, the power and the instruction of the Lord Jesus. And these are the final verses of a pretty large section of the book of Luke that we've been in since chapter 4, verse 14. This whole time, all these things we've been looking at and reading about, Jesus has been in the region of Galilee. It's his Galilean ministry. It's often referred to as everything that's happened has been happening in Galilee. And, um, and this section's drawing to a close. You remember a lot of what's been happening through this is this question of who is Jesus, and then th the book starts to transition slightly here, uh, particularly next week in verse 51, which we'll, we'll start next week. So in these verses we're going to see today, Luke highlights the need and the importance of listening to Christ, to listening to Jesus. Were the disciples to follow their own understanding of things, it would not end well, and so it is true for us as well. So we're going to look at these four important lessons showing us the need and the importance of listening to, to Jesus. So lesson number one is faith in Christ is always central. Faith in Christ is always central. We never get past uh, you know, our need for faith. So uh, read with me beginning in verse 37. It says, On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold... A man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you, look at my son, for he's my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him, so that he foams at the mouth, and sh it shatters him, 
and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. So the day after the events on the mountaintop from last week, we're told that this man from the crowd uh, comes out to, and, and comes to Jesus and he, he cries out to him. He's, he's, he's going to tell him of a desperate situation. Verse 36 it says he cried out, it says he begged Jesus to help his only son. Things are not good for this child. And his father goes on to explain that this, uh, this, this spirit that is a, a demon, um, just in this, these verses, this spirit is referred to as a, a spirit, a demon, and an unclean spirit. These are all synonyms. Uh, the spirit would seize him, and the boy would cry out, and it would cause the child to convulse and to foam from the mouth. And he adds that it would shatter him. Uh, That word can sometimes refer to um, shattering like a a pot. But in this case, it means to mistreat or to beat severely. It was causing the boy great physical harm. That's what this is is getting at. And he says it would hardly leave him. It would scarcely leave him alone. So this is is bad and this is uh, frequent. This is happening often. To make matters worse, we see in verse 40, he asked the disciples to cast it out, but they could not. They couldn't take care of this. He comes to them for help, presumably the other nine that were not on the mountain with Jesus, and they were unable to help. And so Jesus responds in exasperation in verse 41, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? It's a statement in the form of a question. Sometimes we say this, what am I supposed to do with you? You know, it's a statement. It's an exasperation in the form of a question. We're not really looking for an answer. He's pointing out in this their lack of faith and their sinfully warped hearts that stray from the path of truth. That's what twisted means. It's not immediately obvious who he's aiming this rebuke at. Who's he aiming this at? Is it the crowd? Is it the father? Is it the disciples? It's not immediately clear, but I think... Uh, In short, I think that it's a general statement that lands on all of them. It's aimed at all of them. Um, So uh, in Mark's gospel, for example, uh, he tells this account, but he he zones in on the father, and he tells us about the father, and his father was clearly wrestling with a lack of faith. Uh, You remember the line, he's the one who declares, I believe, help my unbelief. You know, he's he's struggling to believe, um, so we know he was wrestling with unbelief. Uh, But Luke doesn't mention that here. Luke's focus seems to be on the disciples, the disciples themselves being included in this rebuke. And the focus in these verses is on the contrast between the disciples and their lack of power, their lack of ability, and by contrast, uh, the power of Christ and his ability to, uh, to, to heal this child and, and, and put him back in his right mind and give him back to his father. So it seems then the most obvious reason for the failure of the disciples to cast out this demon is that they lack faith. So certainly the crowd lacked faith. Uh, We know from Mark the father struggled to believe as well. Um, But the disciples likewise needed faith. So how so? In In what way did they lack faith here? Well, 
I don't think that this is telling us the disciples didn't have any faith or that they didn't believe in Jesus at all, that uh, you know, they were unbelieving altogether here. Um, I don't think that's what it's saying. Rather, it would seem that they think or they're acting as if the power over demons that Jesus gave them back at the beginning of the chapter, in chapter 9, verse 1, if you remember that, he gave them some authority as they went out to preach, and they had authority over sickness and also over demons. They, they seem to be acting now in these verses as though this is a power that just works regardless of their faith, as though they somehow possess this even in and of themselves to be able to do this, as though it's just a formula. So I would say uh, it's similar to how some people view, um, say, baptism or the Lord's Supper. So, for example, um, a, a Roman Catholic understanding of, of baptism is that um, it, just, it has a power to give grace in and of itself. So, for example, um, they would baptize an infant and they would say just the act uh, brings about regeneration. You know, it doesn't matter that the child's unable to believe, to, to respond in faith. Just simply the act of sprinkling them with this water uh, regenerates them and washes away you know, their, their initial depravity from, that they received from Adam. And it's just this act that doesn't, you don't need faith. It just, it just acts on its own, basically. Well, that seems to be the kind of thing the disciples are maybe starting to, to do here with this trying to you know, help this, this boy out with this demon. So, in Matthew, for example, Jesus explicitly says that the disciples failed because they lacked faith. And in Mark, in Mark's account of this story, he tells us that this demon cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. So, it seems then that these disciples were relying on their own power, their own strength, rather than appealing to God through prayer, rather than seeing that the power for this was outside of themselves, and that's who they need to look to, the Lord, for His power to work this wonder. Again, as we looked at way back when we were looking at uh, the beginning of chapter 9, they were to understand back then that the power of their ministry was the Lord Jesus, that He was the one giving them authority and then sending them out to proclaim the gospel and to, for these apostles to work these miracles. So He was the power. He was the authority. He was the one they needed. They needed to trust in Him. And it seems here then, as we fast forward to verses 37 to 43, that they've um, forgotten this. They've lost sight of this, and therefore they have failed. They don't just possess this power in and of themselves. And so Jesus again reveals that it's his power that's needed. It's him that's needed by rebuking the demon, by healing the boy, and then giving him back to his father. So we never move beyond our need of faith, our need for trusting in the Lord. Uh, We need him at all times. Uh, If we are to serve the Lord in any way, and if that is to be successful in any real way, It has to be His power at work. It's His power that's required. So if our attempts, for example, to encourage one another, if that's going to have any help, any effect, uh, it must be because the Lord makes it effective. We have no power in and of ourselves, uh, even if we're gifted at encouragement, to make sure that it is effective. And it's the same for every gift that's exercised in the church. Evangelism, teaching, preaching, Mercy, giving, etc. If any of it is to bear spiritual fruit, it is because Jesus, the Lord, makes it effective. 
because we are weak and we are in need of His help. And so praise God, He does in fact help. Our weakness uh, can be discouraging, but it's not in fact a cause for depression because the Lord is powerful. It's not cause for depression, uh, but cause to be reminded that Christ is strong and that He can and does make our lowly gifts such that they are useful in building up His body and building up His church, which is what these gifts are for. And so we must not grow weary in serving one another and building one another up, coming alongside one another. Trust that even if our effort seems weak, um, that the Lord can use it. And we must also guard against thinking that somehow we supply the power, right? Or if we're, we, we can't get sucked into thinking that, um, you know, of losing sight of where true, true power comes from for this. Um, pride is just a devastating sin. It's a crushing sin. And that's what this is, just thinking that somehow we have this great ability or we are great. And so let us be those who flee from pride. If God is to do anything great, anything good in our families, in our homes, and in this church, then it's going to be because He is good, kind, and merciful, not because we are awesome. And this is our hope. And so may we not lose sight of it. The righteous, we, the righteous live by faith. Uh, it's Him we need. We never lose sight of faith. Uh, we, we never move beyond our need to look to Him, to trust Him for everything. So that's lesson number one. Uh, The second is that Christ's suffering is at the heart of the gospel. Christ's suffering is at the heart of the gospel. So keep reading, second half of 43. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them, so that they might not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about this saying. So the crowd was astonished, they were amazed, rightfully, after Jesus heals this boy. And now, Luke says, but while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, so he's setting up a contrast here, right? He's saying, but, or even though the people were amazed by this and marveling, Not just at the above miracle, but he says at everything or at all that he was doing. Amid all this hype and all this excitement, Jesus has something to say. And he says, let these words sink into your ears. So this is important. You want to grasp this, he's saying. And then he says, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Delivered, he's going to be betrayed. He's going to be handed over into the hands of men. it's for them to do what they want with him, and that's going to be hurt him. And we know that. This is uh, predicting his ultimate suffering that's going to come in Jerusalem when he would be handed over and he would be crucified. And so he's saying all this excitement, all these great things, and he says, um, let this sink in. I'm going to be handed over into the hands of men. This is the second prediction of his coming suffering back in verse 22. We saw that, and we also noted last week as Jesus is talking on this mountain with Elijah and Moses, the topic of their conversation was uh, his coming death and resurrection and his ascension to the Father's right hand. So this is central. 
So there's, there's this excitement now that's, you know, around this miracle and excitement about Jesus. Now, there's an understanding that uh, the presence of the Messiah, this person who's come, the Savior, has come. Many thought then this would just be a straight shot for them to glory. He's going to come. He's going to punt out these Romans that oppress us, and all is going to be well with us. And so Jesus, again, is trying to maybe temper that. He's trying to correct that understanding a little bit with declaration of his coming suffering. So though the crowds are are excited, um, he's going to be betrayed into the hands of men. Some of them are going to turn on him yet and turn him over to others. Luke tells us in verse 45 that the disciples did not understand this. Uh, they They didn't understand this. Now it's not that they did not understand the words, you know, that, that they didn't know what he meant when he said he'd be handed over to the hands of men or betrayed. Uh, this is plain enough language, uh, and he made it even more explicit earlier in verses 22, verse 22. Um, rather, what they don't understand is the significance of this. They don't understand how this could possibly fit into God's plan for the Messiah. How can this be? How could the Messiah... Uh, be handed over, betrayed, suffer and die. I mean, this, do- this doesn't seem to fit with their understanding. And so this is the thing, the significance of this, the purpose of it. Uh, this is what they fail to understand. This is what they don't get. And Luke adds uh, that this was concealed from them so that they, they wouldn't understand. So while God is not explicitly named as the active one doing the concealing This is the best understanding of this verse, that God is the one in this moment keeping it from them. It's not some other force, it's not merely human weakness, but it's God. These are often referred to as um, divine passives. Uh, This was concealed from them, and it's the work of God doing that. And so the question obviously is why? Why would he conceal this from them? Why would this be the case? What's the purpose? Well, it's emphasizing God's sovereignty in slowly and progressively revealing more truth to the disciples that they might understand. This was a gradual process that God took them on. And this is, he has his reasons for doing it. It's not immediately clear to all of us, but we see this throughout Scripture. He gradually, over time, revealed more and more truth about himself. Gradually, over time, revealed more and more clarity as to his plan of redemption and how he was going to bring that out. And for these disciples of his, these apostles, he didn't make everything clear and lay everything out just all at once. This was a process and it took some time. So they're, they're afraid, we're told, to ask them about it here. They, they sense they should, they should get this, and they don't, and they're a little nervous to ask him. Um, but if we were to jump ahead to chapter 24, in verse 45 of Luke, there, this is interesting, Jesus, we're told, it says, opened their minds. It's talking about the disciples. Opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. So here things are concealed. Later, Jesus opens their minds to understand the Scriptures. Not just any Scriptures, but the ones that talk about this very thing. It says this, uh, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. So in God's plan, Jesus would prepare his disciples uh, through this instruction, but it wouldn't be immediately clear right away the significance of this, but after his death and resurrection, then things would, would click for them. 
things would suddenly become a lot more clear. They would suddenly understand the Old Testament and how it was necessary for the Messiah to come, to suffer, to die, and to rise again from the dead. So this, this understanding would, in fact, come later. And so again, in these verses, we see, once more, the central place of Christ's suffering and his death. The disciples are, are grasping who he is. We saw, uh, we saw uh, Peter's um, declaration that Jesus is the Messiah. They're, they're grasping that, but now he's explaining to them more of what this is going to look like. What kind of a Messiah is he going to be? And part of what he's going to do is going to require uh, his, his death. It's going to require him being betrayed, handed over to men, dying, later to rise again. So the cross of Christ is the focus of his earthly ministry, of Christ's earthly ministry, of what he came to do. This was one of the major points of last Sunday's sermon. Jesus is the glorious Messiah, and it's his death, his resurrection, and his ascension to the Father's right hand. This makes up the major focus of what he came to do. And so this is why we preach this. Uh, This is why we do this all the time. This is why we proclaim this here. This is why we try to take this message to others around us. This is why we talk about the cross of Christ. We talk about his death and his resurrection. It's the center of what it is he came to do. There might be temptation to, to talk about other things about Jesus that are maybe easier to stomach than the fact that he came to die for sins that implies we are sinful and in need of salvation. That might be a difficult message for people to hear. That all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and yet it's the truth of Scripture. And at the heart of what Jesus came to do was to reconcile sinful men to God by dying in their place on the cross, taking the wrath of God that we deserve for our sins upon Himself, dying there in the place of all who would believe in him, rising again from the dead, and then ascending to the Father's right hand to intercede for all who would believe in him, to intercede for us before God the Father. So this is central to what he came to do. It's central to who we are as his people. It's central to our church. It's the message that the world needs to hear to turn from their sin and be saved, to be forgiven, to be made right with the holy, the holy, perfect God. And for Christians, this is also a great hope, our our great hope, and a great source of our comfort. And so we want to be reminded of this regularly, that while many difficulties come our way and we face them and they're, they're legitimate, they're hard, we can remember our crucified and risen Savior who's died on our behalf, he's ascended to the Father's right hand, and he currently is there interceding for us. And so we glory in the cross of Christ. We are not ashamed of the apparent weakness of it as it is the means by which the Lord worked a glorious salvation for us and for all who would believe in Him. Third lesson, greatness is found in humility. Look at verse 46. An argument arose among them, the disciples, as to which of them was the greatest. Sounds like a bad idea, doesn't it? But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. 
Back in verses 21 and 22, when Jesus first predicted his suffering, he followed that up right away by telling his disciples that they likewise, if they follow him, can expect to suffer as well. If they treat the master that way, they're going to treat us that way as well. And here again, we see they needed a reminder that being a disciple wasn't a fast track to worldly greatness, to a life of ease and, 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 and greatness as the world would define it. And so here they are arguing about who's greatest. And, and really, I mean, it is an embarrassing argument that they're having. Uh, it's easy for us to see it that way. But if we try to place ourselves in, ourselves in that, their situation, in their shoes, um, I think it's at least somewhat understandable. Uh, and on a human level, we can maybe understand it. So in their minds, I mean, their understanding, Jesus is the Messiah, that's true. The Messiah will deliver us from all earthly oppression. We are his twelve, his right-hand men. Therefore, we will all be great and we will rule with him. And really just, I wonder who will be the greatest of all of us. You know, it's not a, it's not a far shot. It's somewhat understandable why they are thinking this way. It doesn't make it right, um, but, but it's somewhat understandable. And indeed, the 12, these 12 apostles, these 12 disciples, they do. They do have a special place uh, in, in and role as apostles in God's kingdom. However, they fail to understand um, what this is going to look like, what that role is going to be. And Jesus corrects here their quest for greatness by reordering their understanding of what of what, it, of what that means, of what it means to be great, and correcting a worldly mindset. And so he takes this child, uh, and he uses this child as an illustration of true greatness. He says, anyone who receives, that is, who welcomes such a child in Jesus' name, he receives Jesus himself, and whoever receives Jesus receives the one who sent Jesus, namely, God the Father. So how does this work? Well, first, this child, uh, a child illustrates uh, lowliness and lack of status. I mean, a child can't really do much for you, right? They're not going to advance your career or do, you know, a lot in that sense for you. They're wonderful, but, but, you know, they're lowly. They're not really able to do a lot for you in that sense. So they illustrate lowliness, lack of status, but more specifically, the child here, the, as Jesus calls this child forward, the child here illustrates a humble lowly believer in Christ. And to receive such a person is to receive Jesus and the Father. So again, how how can this be? Well, he says, for, here's the reason, he who is least among you all, that is, least among you in the church, among you believers, the one who is least among you all is the one who is great. And so the very least of us, the very least of believers in Jesus Christ is made great by virtue of the fact that we have Jesus. This person has Christ. And they know that all their worth is found in Him. And so when we, when Christians, when we receive a believer in Jesus' name, we receive Jesus because that person has Jesus. He is with that person. And so what Christ is doing here is showing that in his kingdom, greatness is not established by who rules over who or who rules over what or who is particularly well thought of. This is often, this is how it works in the world, but this is not how it works in the church. 
Rather, by virtue of being united to Christ by faith, this is what makes a person great. This is what gives a person any status at all. And a humbled believer knows and understands that this is all we have. This is our our only hope. That we would belong to the Lord. And so the disciples, they are quibbling over rank, over self-exaltation, but the lowest of believers, Jesus says, is great. And so he's, what he's doing here is he's putting us all, all who believe in Christ, he's putting us on an equal footing. Right? Before, cross, before the cross, we're all equal. In Christ, Paul would say, there's neither male nor female, slave nor free, rich nor poor, Jew nor Gentile. We are all one in Christ Jesus. There is one body. And so in the church, we do not receive somebody based on some worldly form of criteria. If a person is a believer in Christ Jesus, then they have an exalted status. Jesus says that person's great. There's nothing more required for that. And so, as a church, we receive such a person. That person may not be much of anything in the eyes of man outside of the church, but that doesn't matter. That doesn't matter here. If someone can only bring us very little They're full members of the church if they believe in Christ. If a person could do a lot for us, maybe someone is wealthy or has great status or privilege outside of the church, uh, they are no more privileged within the church than anyone else. And true greatness knows this. All of us come to Christ in the same way. We come to God beating our chest, asking God for mercy. And we are all equally nothing before God Almighty, and yet simultaneously we all equally possess supreme riches in Christ Jesus. We are lowly, we are great, kind of all at once. And when pride wells up and we think highly of ourselves, then we're acting out of step with this truth. And ironically, we're, we're acting very not great in that moment. So in the church, we do not lord it over one another, but we love one another as co-heirs with Christ. And we desire the Lord himself alone to be exalted in this. And so again, this is a call to beware our old enemy, pride. The final lesson here, lesson, fourth lesson, Christ being glorified by other people in other places is a cause for rejoicing. Christ being glorified by other people in other places is cause for rejoicing. So look at verse 49, 50. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. So the Apostle John here tells uh, the Lord about this, this, uh, this other man they saw casting out demons and how they tried to stop him. And the reason for this is because he does not follow with us. So the issue is uh, not what the man's doing here even. The issue for the disciples is he doesn't roll with us. He's not in our group here. He's not with us 12. He's doing these works, but he's not part of our group. And so Jesus' response, don't stop him. Why? Because, he says, the one who is not against you is for you. Now, uh, in chapter 11, verse 23, Jesus is going to say something that appears to say the opposite. 
Uh, It appears to contradict this. There he says, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters me. So here we have the one who's not against you is for you. But there we have whoever's not with me is against me. Which can seem like, you know, that seems to be the opposite. I think these fit together, and uh, I'll just try to explain that. Um, again, as always, as always the case, context is really helpful and important. In chapter 11, there Jesus is talking about the fact that there's no neutrality when it comes to one's response to Christ, one's personal response to Christ. If someone is not explicitly with him, then they are in fact against him. One either has repented of their sin, they're believing in Jesus Christ, or they have not. That's it. And that's what Jesus is getting at there in chapter 11. There's no neutral way. The, you know, someone, the, unbelief looks different in different people. Some people rail against the Lord and write books about the Bible being, you know, trying to rip and shred the Bible and, and Christianity. Other people are just indifferent. And what chapter 11 is telling us is both of those people are against Christ. There's no neutrality. Both of them are uh, outside of the faith and outside of Christ. Here, the context is different. He's addressing this this issue of they're not with us. And so it isn't saying if anyone isn't directly opposing you, then they're a Christian. That means they're a Christian and they're on your side. That would, would contradict chapter 11. Rather, it seems here that the man in question that they've tried to stop is genuinely performing these works in Jesus' name. Uh, the parallel uh, uh, account of this in Mark 9, 38 seems to suggest this too, that this is genuine work of a, of a believer, someone who actually legitimately is following Christ and believes in him. And so when Jesus says, the one who's not against you, he's referring to a person who is legitimately for Jesus, believes in Jesus, though he is not in the same group as you. Uh, such a person is not an enemy, he's saying. They're actually they're working towards the same goals as you, though they're doing it elsewhere. And while you don't know him, while you might even have some questions about this person or maybe doubts about him, he says here, don't stop him if he's a genuine believer, as Christ is legitimately glorified by this person. So the true test of of a believer is not whether or not they're in our church or whether or not they're in one group or another. that's That's a cult mentality, right? Someone cannot be outside of our group and genuinely be saved. Right? That, Jesus is saying that is, that's what he's, he's, he's rebuking here. Jesus says, don't stop him. He is for you. MacArthur, uh, John MacArthur points out that uh, the Apostle John, who is the one who brings this up uh, to the Lord here, the Apostle John, in the book of 1 John, we see he would eventually come to understand that the only genuine test for one's ministry is the test of true doctrine and the test of fruitfulness. If these things are there, then this is a cause for rejoicing. If they're in another church, that's okay. If they're preaching the gospel, we can rejoice in that. Also, if you'll remember uh, from the book of Philippians, chapter 1, verse 18, there the Apostle Paul Um, his attitude, we see him there rejoicing because Christ is being preached, Christ is being proclaimed, 
Uh, he rejoices even when that's done out of bad motives. When the preachers were doing that for maybe some bad reasons, if the message was true and the message was accurate and the gospel was really proclaimed, Paul says, even in that, uh, I can rejoice in that. Obviously, it would be ideal if it was done with the right motives, but even then he's saying, I still rejoice in that. So he finds joy even in that. But when the message of somebody corrupts the gospel, if they claim to be a Christian, they claim to be for Christ, and yet their message destroys the gospel in some way, Paul responds very differently. He responds with a sharp um, refutation. And even in the book of Philippians, we see that later on. So in chapter 1, verse 18, he rejoices when the gospel is proclaimed truly and rightly and accurately, even when it's with, by bad motives. But then in chapter 3, verse 2, when it's the Judaizers who are corrupting the gospel, he says, watch out for those dogs, he calls them, the mutilators of the flesh. So that's a very stern thing to say. It's a very different reaction. And the difference there is that um, the gospel itself was corrupted in the latter group. And so I think this is instructive for us in terms of cooperation, in terms of viewing you know, other believers outside of our church, outside of our city, where Jesus is genuinely proclaimed and where the gospel is glorified. We ought to rejoice in that. If that happens in another church, and let's say there's wonderful fruit and the church grows and people are believing the gospel through that, then we are not to be suspect that gospel is truly proclaimed. We're not to be jealous of that, but we, that's a reason for us to rejoice. There's a, a, a church I can think of um, that, uh, not, not one that's in Weyburn, um, the one that's in mine, but um, in fact, there's a number of churches I can think of that fit this, what I'm about to say, uh, that there's the number of things they do that I don't think a church should do. And I would never say that we should do those things as a church um, and, and if I were to attend there, it would be unsettling. But, but, I also have every confidence that the gospel really is proclaimed in that church. And so I think this tells me that I should rejoice in that. And, and, I, and I do, I genuinely do. If the gospel, when the gospel is actually proclaimed, even if we have some dis disagreements, and even if those things are even on, on matters that are, are important, um, there's still a reason to rejoice in what's happening in that church when that gospel is proclaimed, when Christ is glorified through that. The reality is the kingdom of God is much bigger than us. And this is good news that it's much bigger than us, that it doesn't hinge on us. And it's also good that God uses different people here and all around the world uh, to, to, to advance his kingdom. And it's, good, it's good, good news that he bears with us in our weaknesses. Uh, otherwise, I mean, what hope do we all have? I know that every, you know, we all think we are right in every way, um, and yet um, you know, there's, there's, there's other people who, who disagree with us and, uh, on some of these secondary matters, and they're wonderful believers in the Lord Jesus, and one day when we get to heaven, we will find out they were, in fact, wrong. Um, but, uh, but until then, you know, we, we, we can rejoice. If, if the gospel is there, they are proclaiming Christ, we can rejoice in that even if we have other disagreements and even if some of those uh, are important ones. Even the apostles themselves, they played a foundational and important role, uh, but it was also going to be well beyond them. And Jesus says of this man, uh, just leave him be. You don't need to correct him. 
So again, we must check our pride here and rejoice in the work of God that goes on in other places and be grateful for that, genuinely so. So these are just four lessons uh, revealing the ongoing need for us as Christ's disciples to lean not on our own understanding but to listen to Christ, to do as, this, as the Father said, listen to Him. These are four ways that we could easily be misled. We never move beyond the need for faith. Christ's suffering is at the heart of the gospel. Greatness in the church is found in the lowliest of believers And we are not at the center of the universe. Where Christ is honored in other places, we rejoice at that. This is good news. It's a good thing. And so may we continually engage in this process of checking our understanding against the Word of God, seeking to adapt, you know, repent of our, uh, if it's sin in our lives or a false understanding of the Word of God, uh, checking everything with His Word, conforming our thoughts and our lives to its truth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for, again, for your word. Father, we're very grateful that that you are at work rescuing a people for yourself and that um, this all doesn't hinge on us and our ability to get every single thing perfectly right. So we rejoice that you are at work elsewhere, And we pray that, as we have seen that the cross of Christ stands at the center of what it is He came to do, the work of redemption, we pray that You would raise up more men in churches to preach that gospel, and that that gospel would go forth throughout this city and throughout this province and this nation and the world, and that You would continue to be pleased to draw people to Yourself, and we Uh, Rejoice in the fact that you have helped us see this truth and caused us to be born again to this living hope that we have in Christ. And I pray that every single person here would understand their sinfulness before, before you, that we fall short of your standard and glory, and that we need forgiveness of that sin. And so, Father, thank you for making a way for us to be saved and forgiven. And Father, I just pray that we would rejoice in this, that we would go from this place encouraged, that we would go from this place strengthened, that we would take joy in this reality, that we would take joy in the fact that whatever comes our way, we can know and be assured that our sins have been forgiven, and that when we stand and our short days on this earth run out and we stand before you, we will be clothed in the righteousness of Christ and our sins will be washed clean. Father, we give you praise and thanksgiving, and we pray that you would bless the rest of our time in fellowship today. Strengthen your people as we go from this place. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.